Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Bowden Babacic. Bowden is one of Australia's most respected fitness coaches, has had a strong involvement with AFL football and athletics. He is highly experienced physical preparation coach. Bowden has worked with the Melbourne Football Club, the Australian National Basketball Team, the Boomers, as head fitness coach from 2002 2006, while also consulting and specialist speed coach with Richmond, St Kilda and Kangaroos during 2005-2006. Before these appointments, Bowden was the fitness coordinator at Hawthorne Football Club from 1994 until 2004. After a stint with Collingwood as a strength and conditioning coach from 1991 to 1993, Bowden has a Bachelor of Education, Physical Education, and is a Level 5 Athletics coach. Before we start episode 50 with Bowden, the Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram. And to subscribe for podcasts, we're on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Remember, you can send through some questions for Bowden as well at the end of the chat or Q&A. We got there. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well done, <laughs> Jack. Oh, well done. Thanks for that. It's, not, it's uh, yeah, not the easiest thing to do, but um, persistence pays, hey? <laughs> yep, yep. No, we, we're there. We're under pressure, but we can't through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got a couple of cool goods in the background there. Oh, so, yeah. I'd, yeah, uh, it's uh, sorry, that's uh, from Dave Anderson when he played at the Raptors, Toronto, thirteen, uh, and uh, um, Rachel Jarry got myself and actually Valerie Stoyman off that worked with her and helped out with the Opals and Dom Trimboli to help. So they got the girls to get us a, um, a Guernsey sign, nice. which was nice. Not me. Do all that, but it's uh, they just they're here in the study because my wife said the house will be jumped up otherwise with um, too many. I love memorabilia; uh, it's all in a box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Better off oh, having not hog family instead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, take us back to the beginning of, of your career. What age did you discover you had a passion for athletics and and physical preparation uh, for sport? Yeah, Jack. I, look, I um, I had it for my whole life. I, I probably uh, initially I I was um, I just loved athletics. You know, I was hooked by uh, Olympic games. You know, and, and uh, then I um, I become an athlete, and I sort of, I competed nationally and um, in long jump, triple jump, you know, and decathlon, and um, from that I um. I went into coaching. Well, actually, I didn't actually go into coaching. I just wanted to help. And, and the story behind wanting to help athletes was towards the end of my athletics career. I was still competing till I was about 38 uh, and uh, oh, 35 wow. in nationals. So I still did a decathlon and, uh, and triple jump. I think at 38, I still finished about fifth. And um, by that, but I was mainly coaching myself. And I used to read because I I didn't know where to get help, <laughs> and that's probably what drove me to want to be a coach. And yeah. my athletics club, I had this kid, my first athlete that I really coached, but I I, can't, I didn't really coach for coaching's sake. I just wanted to help him, and I held all the records in jumps. And uh, his name was Simon Jackatine. I said, Simon, I think I can help you break my record, and um, <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. So I yeah. started training with me. So we trained together. 
And then I actually knew when he made nationals, he won a state title and he broke my record, which, which was fantastic. And I thought, this is fun. That's actually just as much fun in that transition phase that a lot of um, athletes have problems with in their life, like letting go. Transitioning, you know, like, yeah, no, sure. No issue with the transition because I was actually, I saw myself as a helper. By then I'd got a physical education degree um, and I went back and did some postgraduate studies, funny enough, in recreation. And um, and I just wanted, I just, I just had a passion to help. And as, even as a, uh, probably about, 15, 16 year old, I used to devour modern athlete and coach, which was this author. I'm going, I'm going back a bit now, but it's, he was Jess Java and he was, um, I think he was a Latvian. I uh, don't want to get it wrong, Latvian or, yeah, Latvian. And he, yeah. he put all the Soviet and East German articles and they put them into athletic journals. I've still got the old journals, you know, I'm talking of uh, in the 60s. So as a self coached athlete, I would devour the information. So when I did the PE course, I actually found I was ahead of what the because a lot of the reference books, you know, were written but not updated. Whereas the new yeah, stuff sure. that I was reading was all updated, coming in from you know Europe, America, and a lot of translations on every event. And so, so that got me interested. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be self-coached, I've got to, I've got to improve myself. So I, I improved my knowledge. And uh, I knew the transition came when I um, saw the athlete that I was coaching, Simon Jacatine. I was involved in decathlon. I had one throw yeah. in the distance, which was a lousy one. It was at Canberra. Simon, I saw him at the triple jump pit. He hurt himself. And so I ran up to see how he was, and I forfeited my throws. And I thought, okay, you've just become a coach. <laughs> you care more yeah. about yourself. I didn't go back to complete my round, my third throws. So, so after that, I, um, I, I people recognise it. You know, they recognise if you're pa passionate. That's the main thing. And um, mm. Australian Track and Field Coaches Association put me through courses, and it was approaching towards the Olympics. Uh, still well off. Look, I'm talking about five years out, and I went to games school because I was a teacher at Pacific School Games. Um, and my squads, which I used to coach for nothing, I was just passionate, finished up with some national champions. Uh, one of the girls, she's still 20 years, 20 plus years later, still holds Australian triple jump record. And um, so I just put a lot of time into those people and um, just passionate. And in a way, they developed my coaching as much as anyone, um, as much as any course I ever did. The course, of course, was a starting outline. Yeah. But no, I, I was just looking in through some of my um, filing cabinets, and I've probably got about three full filing cabinets, and I had plans and data and on every single one of them. Like every session that we did was catalogued. Uh, it's like reads like a book. Uh, it's just like I just I thought I actually surprised myself how much work I did. It was just a process. It wasn't you know I wasn't impressing myself. It's just like that's. That's just what it took. And, uh, and, you know. and do you think that was something that you wanted as an athlete, that coach? 100%. I, I, I missed out. Uh, really good question, Jack. It's like, well, some people say they failed as an athlete. No, I, I sort of had good success, but I, I just loved the sport. I loved every sport, mind you. I mm. was playing football as well, and uh, I had a choice between, at that point, we're in South Melbourne's zone, to go into South Melbourne or athletics, and I had to take make a choice and I was doing 
really well. Football was a bit of an unknown, and athletics I could control. Mm. You know, where I got to, it was all very measurable. And I thought, you know, I just want to keep doing it. I made some really good friends, and I just wanted to continue for friendship's sake as well as performance. But I found that, yeah, I, I, I wish I had a coach like myself, you know, a well-trained coach and uh, a passionate coach that could have guided me through those years. So in the end, I, I almost think I was un, not not very coachable because I thought I knew too much, like most athletes. And they start. It's it's not an arrogance. It's a defence mechanism in a way. Um, you think, yeah, you yeah. They come off what what was already working, but it wasn't working to where it should have been if I look back on it. You know, I should have, it's like saying, well, look, I'm playing well. It's like in footy there, uh, adage of, oh, yeah, but yeah, fine, you, you're going to teach me running, but will it get me a kick? And I'm thinking, mm. yeah, well, you did all that. It will help you go better and uh, improve you. And, uh, or someone saying, well, I'm already running 10 flat. Uh, I don't need to listen to you anymore. Um, yet you might have run 9.9 or 9.8. And, um, or just perform better in big meets. And so, yeah, I, I probably stuffed up my own career in a way. Um, it's like most of us, we practice on ourselves, but we're passionate. And then you realise, you actually realise intrinsically exactly where you went wrong uh, mm. through injury, through wrong methods. Uh, and I look back, and I kept data, so, so my information is very real. I look back and I think, boy, I stuffed this up. I sent, spent too much time getting too strong. Not enough getting ballistic, elastic, uh, not enough technical. And, and what uh, sort of data were we tracking back then? Was it like the weight oh. you're lifting for the reps <laughs> and then the, your running times? Yeah, look, I, I was everything I did, training, wind, approximate wind reading. I didn't have a wind gauge at the sessions, but I'd go, wow. you know, I got to know two metres per second, northwest wind. Um, <laughs> that Where felt, did you get that? Is that a common athletics thing to do? That's a... When I was doing, from all my reading, I, I used to read athletes' journals. And so I'd yeah. go, and uh, they would say, write a training log. And I was, I'd see so many different athletes from overseas and here. And, and the other one, I, one of the biggest influences in my whole career was actually just competing. But the athletes, and especially in decathlon, like, you might get to, I was not a very good shot putter. And I was good at long jump, so I'd help out the guys that weren't good long jumpers with their run up and the technical side, and mm. then that went through the shot put. <laughs> and so we actually helped each other because each of us understood that 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 particular person I'm competing against just wants to get better for themselves. If they beat me, fair enough, but they're going to help me too beat myself. And so yeah. in doing better and had more fun. And so those those athletes would give you their training plans, what they were doing, including everyone. In the era that I grew up, um, it's, it was professional but not cutthroat, and everyone passed on a lot of advice, and coaches would too. In a way, you probably got too much advice because you think that works well. He's a good athlete, or she's a good athlete, and uh, and then you'd go off track. So you never stuck mm. long enough with what really worked and that's where I probably did need a coach because I'd listened to you know, um, every single person that I was competing against that I felt had something to say but I, in doing so I picked up a lot of different methods and, and that's Absolutely. where the training came through and you know they're really <laughs> you know, every time every uh, rest phase uh, yeah, okay. kind of, you know I was mainly doing long jump but I was actually doing my recoveries but then with decathlon the same sort of thing and I write little technical data points at the bottom, what I felt 
improved maybe or that type of thing yeah. <laughs> yeah interesting and that's something you get your athletes to do a training journal yeah they don't I do funny enough they, people seem to think oh, I'll leave it to the coach and uh, mm. I, I don't think they're that good at doing it I I, I looked at everyone's and I, I, because I was passionate I actually you're probably, you're probably right in your assessment earlier there Jack is that what drove you I was pre preparing to be a coach my whole life and um as I was doing athletics, and, um, and but not realising it, and, and in the end, you know, and it's the data, and I, and I look at some of the great coaches we've got here, like Gary Bourne, that coached Mitchell White and Jai Tarima, you know, these guys are winning medals at world champs and Olympics, and Gary, the same, is meticulous with his data collection, and uh, and and then it's not just collecting it, it's analysing, and mm. then. And, and you almost work backwards. You go, okay, I, um, this is the event. And one of the things Australian Track and Field Coaches Association it just put me, well, when I went for my level five, they made me earn it. Well, at the point, that used to, level five is equivalent to my level three, and they just upgraded it. And uh, mm. to wait many, many years before they let you go up a level. And you actually had to, in athletics, produce like world-class athletes. So you knew what, they stopped me from, well, I, I thought I was ready, and they said, no, you're nearly there. Like, I had long jumpers jumping around 7 metres, 79, 780, and they, they wanted those athletes to go on and be at another level. So 8, eight metres basically got you into an Olympic final. And so I was right on that cusp of coaching someone from, and I mean, not getting a ready-made athlete coaching. These, these were young kids that I'd sort of helped develop just from, not from scratch, they loved athletics, but pretty well from a very young age. Yeah. And then from there, went into junior development with the, the national program. But so many good coaches were in that program. And, uh, and, and, and like I said, every athlete you learn from and you talk to them and you learn from what their influences were and what went to making them such a good athlete or, or not a way good athlete, what made some of us not achieve what we should have achieved, you know, you, you have to look at both sides. Of yeah, and, and, and like you mentioned before, how, how do you, you know, especially in today's world where there's so much information out there, how do you keep an athlete that you're working with um, focus on one thing and doing that really well rather than listen to so many voices like you referenced? Yes. Like, well, how interesting. do you uh, filter what's important and what's, yeah, what's yeah, uh, yeah. you know, distraction? Yeah, two stories on that. Well, one is... Three. <laughs> Sorry, I, I tend to see. That's all right, mate. We're back into everyone's, lunch. Everyone's engaged. <laughs> but then the, the first thing is that, that I learned through my level uh, through five is know your event. Really understand and know your event inside out. Like, and that's just not knowing it what, from data, stats, the technical side. Um, every aspect, the emotional side, the, and then once you know the the event, then you work backwards and you start putting the pieces that go into that event. Um, and if you know, I know a lot of people are football people here. Don't just mm. know your weight training or conditioning training or running training. Know what the coaches want you want from this particular team you're working from, and that's only that team. And then know what other teams want and then see what you can provide in that picture. So so when I go back to my jumping um, 
coaching. I had um, had a girl, Nicole Modenis, and she's a Western Australian. Actually, two of the girls that I coached at that point were number one, number two in Australia, and it was at Tassie, Tasmania. So what – and I'm thinking, well, I've had these other people in Victoria that weren't jumping as well. One is the two girls were extremely talented. But what, what we did, especially with Nicole – she was really meticulous from WA. She'd come over. We'd do a two-week block, and we'd focus basically on one aspect of the technical model. So once you know the model, it might have been, for instance, the runner. And then Nicole would go back to WA, and her husband, Jeff, he would do all the videoing and send it back exactly on and compare to what she was doing with me. So we had to improve that particular aspect. And then she would come back again and we'd leave that aspect because it was perfect. She just worked on it and we'd have the next pace. So from the run-up, it connected to the last few steps into the takeoff, for instance, and then the hop and then the flight and then the landing each time. And it took a long process, but for Coach Nicole, since she was 19, well, 18, 18, 19, till she was in her 30s and each year she kept improving and kept pushing the record up. And... Um, we found that it was very meticulous because we didn't get confused. Often when you, when you coach, you might be, say, focusing on, I don't know, so, so, say it's football because there'll probably be a lot of work to it. Say you're just doing a running kick into, uh, you just flat out pick up the ball and, and run flat out and kick it. And you might be focusing on ball drop and then you go, oh, yeah, but you didn't run very well on here, you weren't low enough. And so you start going off track, and so you start giving them three or four or five different things so you don't give them a focus. You know, mm. if it was, let's just focus on your run. Don't worry about the ball drop. If it sprays, it sprays. But we'll fix that when we get to that. But we try to fix too many things. And same in the gym, you might be thinking of uh, improving you know, hamstring strength or mobility, and you start going, oh, we're going to do, um, you know, um, deadlifts. We're going to do, oh, okay, now we'll do hamstring curls. Now we'll do, and you start throwing the kitchen sink at them instead of mm. being patient and understanding the model and the process and where it's actually heading. And, and that's that was the big thing. So, so um, you know, that, that saves you going off off track too much. And, that, and that's yeah, a big yeah. And, and you throw everything, and it's it's you just have to understand it's a process, and do the simple things well that'll build to the to the uh, harder things later. Yep. And you mentioned um, athletes helping you along the way, and your own personal being an athlete helping you. Are there some guys that pop up in mind, men or women, that have been almost mentors to you, or people that have helped your career? Oh, look, initially because oh, I was. You know, I, I had my own passion, and so my PE teachers, you know, at, I went to Noble Park High School, and Neil McCallum and, and Gavin Mooney just kept inspiring me. And I'd lost my father at 15, so these guys almost stepped in as father figures and and kept me going. Like, I, I, I found it really hard to study. I didn't tell anyone at school, so I was, I was coming through that era of, you know, you don't tell anyone type of thing, so I sort of carried mm. that with me. And then... And I was probably going off the rails a bit, not badly, but just um, not focusing on my study and, uh, and when I should have put more effort in. But at the same time, I was probably trying to do part-time jobs and stuff because my parents were immigrants and didn't have much coin, so I had to 
had to get out and do part-time jobs, holiday jobs and that type of thing that weren't anything to do with um, any to the field that I liked. So the PE teachers kept me going. And then when I got in, I got accepted to um, it was Monash Teachers College, Ruston, and it sort of changed, it kept changing its name. And Bill Walker, who was the head of PE, he saw the passion that I had for everything and he saw that um, those sort of people are needed in teaching. And um, so he saw me as, in his eyes, as a person um, that could you know, have some quality in, in, in teaching. And so he kept me in. At one point I got accepted into the public service because, as I said, I didn't have a father growing up uh, yeah. through the teenage years and the, and, the, and the university years. But So I thought I'd better go out. Now I've got a job, so I passed the, the tests for um, the public service. And then I was going, but I had friends from athletics that I used to compete with that said, no, we can't let him go. They went to the head, and Bill Walker was the head of the PE department, and he... He kept me going. So, you know, there by the grace of God, you know, I would have missed out on my biggest passion in just for the sake of, you know, an existence and money. And I think, well, you know, and my mum said, you know, make sure you get an education and all that. So she forced me as well. So we, we're pretty blessed in that way. And then every athlete from there on in that I'd mixed with had massive influences. And, and, and then when I did my... The Australian Track and Field Coaches Association were absolutely brilliant. Well, you know, we had calibre of coaches. Norm Osborne, who's passed away, and his um, biggest protege just passed away on Sunday, Rick Mitchell, um, Olympic silver medalist in the 400 metres. Um, I, I had Phil King, who was Debbie Flintoff King's husband, and I used to do camps for um, a DFK camps. And, and again, filtering information, Phil, I used to take Debbie for some of the plyometrics, and uh, I'd be going through plyometric programs and I'd watch Phil as, as he'd see how passionate I was, and I'd go, Phil, Phil, you're not listening. And then uh, I, I worked out. He was just listening to the bits that he needed to pick up, and he knew his model plucked the important bits, and that's going back to that original question that you said, what do you yeah. look for? He knew his event, and he thought, no, I can't do that, can't do that. Um, but because... Sometimes the things that you do will injure that person because they haven't got the background to absorb that work at that time. And uh, mm. some of the stuff, probably radical triple jump stuff, that worked for a very high-level conditioned athlete. But that's why I'll say to people, don't always copy. Understand your event and uh, really understand it. Not you know, and, and at the same time, I'm sure I don't know any coach that hasn't made mistakes going along the way, but learn from your mistakes. Hence, but, yeah. And, uh, and under, just understand and always, I know we've got in this present era, one of the dangers is we're, we're very mechanised in electronic data and people coming out of the football club with the pen and poke the little um, thing, wellness charts and all that and then often mm. it's read later. Um, there's a lot to be said for human communications. We are human beings and we're in a, a physical and communication thing and what you don't want to lose as a coach is that passion, that intimacy of exchange of ideas, feelings with the athlete. And uh, yeah. one of the things is just to go up to each person and say hello and then actually ask them how they're feeling, how do they feel after their last session. I, I just think that's nearly one of the most crucial things you can do in coaching. And they'll tell you, like last week, they'll tell you they were fantastic on exactly the same day and this week, 
they're not feeling great, they're stiff, sore, and for whatever reasons. And then if you've got data, you can sort of look into it or you can talk to them about it. You yeah. need time, but you almost need to, before people come in, set aside almost uh, 20 minutes just to have a chat before you start your session. And, uh, um, so you can get a good understanding of where they're at. Yeah, yeah, and what cause and effect, what's what's been happening um, in a lot of things, and, uh, and, and that'll affect and- do you so you you know how you mentioned the objective side, um, noting those down? Do you also write down those that sort of how they're feeling and the object that subjective yeah. side? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and right. I, and some of, of people will go through moods, and I'll write <laughs> no toes are very moody today or this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You learn it's how their own reaching. And some athletes handle moods, or you don't. They play their cards close to their chest. So you, you can't get that out. I mean, I learned that through teaching a lot too because you could have a fantastic student and all of a sudden they'd go off the rails and you'd find out their parents had divorced. That no one mm. told you all the stuff was held in. And that kid was riding that and then suddenly blew up in your session and it was like, wow, that's unusual. And um, other ones too from a sporting point of view, I mean, that's a nurturing care type thing, but some of them are just hard asses. And they can go through everything, and they actually get so tough they compete really tough, and uh, so they react differently. So you know, and again, that's the university that you're in. It's actually with your squad, with your athletes, and you learn a hell of a lot. And if, you can't be judgmental because um, it can send you the wrong way too. So you just mm. got to absorb information and not look at it from your perspective. You have to look at it from their perspective, which, which is yeah. Hard. That's a great point, and that, and that's something that um, can so easily happen, can't you? You can just write the same programs that you enjoy doing, or um, the same cues, yes. and the, you know, talk about well, your perspective the whole time. That was my mistake early as a coach. Is in my transition, what I had to go from was what, how I was as a coach, and and, I'll, and let's talk AFL here. Is that some of the early coaches they would only coach like Alan Jeans or something like that because that's mm. well that's their only influence and it was yeah. successful uh, it may not have worked for you know a, a different club a different club with people made up of different people different statures different preparation levels different Game sizes changes a bit yeah yeah everything and so that's the same and I was saying I, I can always remember I, I distinctly in retrospect think back to my coaching and I'd go Look, when I was an athlete, I was blah, blah. I'm thinking, I must have drove some of those athletes mad. And it's like you're sort of putting yourself on a pedestal and saying, look, oh, yeah, I made national finals and blah, blah, doing this and this. Um, you have to be a bit more subtle about it. Or, you know, but I, they were the mistakes I learned along the way is to, is to basically say, well, try this, try that. Um, how does it feel type of thing? And then you'll get it from their perspective rather than, ramming it down their throat, this is when I was a coach, you know, this is the way it works because it worked for mm. me, but, you know, they're all different and, and uh, sometimes many different, you know, generations and, and different backgrounds. It's, you know, I've coached people that are, you know, well, from every, from, um, you know, Christians, Muslims, um, you know, Bashahuli came in the early days and another mm. kid that long jumped over eight metres, he came out of Algeria, he came, he couldn't go back, he was a refugee. 
Um, so, you know, there's different emotions and stresses on different people, some that are very living comfortably, that you saw in our eyes, but maybe not comfortably at home because of issues. Some people that had different stress levels, anxiety levels, and you see Naomi out of Saka, you know, people judged her, and then all of a sudden you see that this person you've got on a pedestal is very vulnerable. And, mm-hmm. um, and the, often the more the superstar, the more pressures. Like I was at Hawthorne when Shane Crawford won the Brownlow, and he was a good, carefree, fun-loving type of guy and won the Brownlow. And then I said, oh, no, here we go. I remember saying we've got to prepare even harder and he over-prepared, like everything was just too much because he'd go to someone wanting for a meeting, uh, the club wanting to promote the club, the Brownlow, uh, so all these other interferences and took away his actual love for just getting out there and having a kick and running and yeah. and, left. and it's like, so there's so many, so many, you have to coach the individual and understand the individual and that, and that's that takes time it's not yeah, something absolutely. manual or a technical book will teach you mm. and, uh, and, and, and it evolves well, as well it sounds like yeah I, I coached for for nothing with i used to even when i worked at hawthorne i thought well we're paying me enough here and the same with teaching i thought well we're paying me money you kids and i know some of the parents can't afford it but i can just hopefully give you the love that i had from the sport and pass it on, and if you get better, you'll enjoy it more, and that's why you're coming here, figure. And um, and that's that was that was my main aim, and so it was really to help and then transition. And I thought, oh, I'm going okay with the coaching. This will keep me in, and I had some really good funding uh, coming towards year 2000. Olympic solidarity kicked in uh, money because it, uh, we had our home Olympics, and we had exposure to like some of the great coaches of the world. It was Victor Sanaev who won a, um, he had all the stuff actually that the VIS um, or the AIS translate, I helped with the translations because my parents were Ukrainian and he, he was head coach of Soviet Union, but Victor won the triple jump in 1968, 1972, 1976. And if that wasn't enough in 1980, he backed up for a silver. And so I thought, you know, this guy's in triple jump, you don't last that long. <laughs> if you're not in a wheelchair after four Olympics, there's something special about you. And I thought longevity, his programs must have been built around longevity. And then they were so systematic when I was translating them, and hence the institutes wanted those pro They paid, I, the rumour was, around a million bucks for all that sort of stuff to get it all, all translated, like wow. to get it all out, for him to sit in there and go through with all the coaches. And then we had... Uh, Vitaly Petrov, the Ukrainian coach of Bubka, and um, he still keeps. He, he, you know, he's he's got the. These guys have the methodology and and the coaching now. So he went and he coached in Brazil, and that guy, um, uh, what his name now, but uh, it's like Tiago or something. And he, uh, Tiago, he he um, he won. I think it was the 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 medal in Rio, and uh, so his 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 methods are are really producing good results constantly and it didn't matter where he was. So, so we, were, we were exposed to these people as well as um, Carl Lewis's coach, Tom Tellez, yep. um, Lawrence Seagrave with all the drills and things and every one of them, they all had the one thing, massive passion and they'd been in the sport for a long time. They, they collected data and I know we collect data based on GPS and all that and, and I always go, that's fine if you know what you're collecting and why you're collecting and what the model is. And 
and then I'll go back to the data that Sunay have collected was written and performance based. So it was based on um, technical data, but also any of the drills and also um, daily data and also from other coaches and comparative. So he got a lot of comparative from different squads. Um, Tom Teles, Carl Lewis's coach, his data, he used to go, he canned us all. He said, how many of you guys take videos? He said, I've got videos of every top athlete in the world, their start, their transition phase and all the sprint and the actions. And he said, and that, that is a means for reviewing your session. And, and I've sort of tried to do the same type of thing. I, I use one of the apps. And because the, the data is, is looking at a video and analysing real motion, and so and I actually find out how many things I, 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 I'll probably have 7,000 videos on my uh, app. That's why I'm on this little phone here with uh, with us because I can't can't get enough data I had to delete the Facebook off the, the bigger the bigger iPad and I've got two iPads just to get enough of my videos data. yeah yeah data and pictures of my dog that's all <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but that's the data is the videos and then yeah. after it, I analyze it and then I send out voiceovers to every athlete that I coach so that I give them a double learning but at the same time, I'm, I'm, as much as you go, oh, the athlete goes, thank you, and that. But I think, geez, I stuffed up here. My positioning was wrong. I didn't see this. I didn't see they do two steps here instead of one. They're not as low as I thought. The landings on their feet aren't correct. Um, there's a lot of tension in the face. Uh, so, so yeah, then I think see a lot more on video than in live. My next action yeah. is based on. I, what I'll do before I do my next session, I'll go back into that video that mm. I that went through. So that's basically a catalogue of that session as well. And I'll think, right, this is where the next stage is building because if you see, um, you know, say 10 different people, you can get – you don't want to do a standard session. Uh, you've got to do it for that person to build on and then develop. So, uh, you know, otherwise it's a bit like I said with the coaching, you start thinking a ball drop. Uh, they're running low enough to run. You start throwing things. in things, and it should be on what that person did last time and build. Yeah. And uh, girl in Western Australia, Nikki, while well, she just kept jumping further and further, we we actually built on the model, and she'd tick it off and come back, and then that was done. I I didn't have to do that phase anymore. It was like spot on, and and uh, uh, yeah. So it's being very systematic. These people, because mm. I don't think. When I was an athlete, I wasn't systematic. I just, like I said, I'd speak to everyone and absorb what they said. And it was really a lot of knowledge. So it was like reading a lot of books, but I didn't have a formula. Yeah. And once I coach, and so hence if I was coaching myself, you know, if I was the yeah, president, yeah. coaching myself as a young kid coming through, I'd be much more systematic and build blocks and build foundations. And no, and it's not just that you didn't actually, I've stuffed up in the past and you've got to know the blocks when they work and how they work and how they get that particular athlete and one of the really good people I worked with through my Melbourne and um, Hawthorne days and even helped out he helped out I, I just bring him in to help with the boomers and opals all the time Valeri Stoymanov he, yeah. he um, really super knowledgeable coach on things and he'd, he'd come out of Bulgaria and he'd worked with some of the world record holders in the weightlifting and that. And he said, basically, you can't, you don't want to have 
structural problems. It's like an engineer, um, which he, he meant postural, they call them defects or something, <laughs> but they were, you know, like kyphotic. And you, you're trying to get to a position and the coach is trying to teach you, well, you want that guy or girl to do something, but physically they're not capable of it because their posture is like stuck yeah. and get the bar of a low position, but they're kyphotic. And you think, well, maybe I'll just better work with a broomstick first and flexibility and mobility first before, and that takes time. It's, it's a process. And so you've got to identify the stage that needs fixing first before you move to the next one. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and those that Melbourne and Hawthorne days are a real change in the guard with how football is prepared from, it sounds like, um, speaking to Loris Bertolacci and, and these guys that you're at the forefront there and, um, you know, John Quinn changing from steady state running to a lot more intermittent speed-based anaerobic-based training. What was that like, that transition? And um, <laughs> what, what, became, what were some of the things you... Um, like, how did you find that experience changing how footballers um, prepared their training? Was it hard to get by in early days? We had uh, the first one was, I, I can give you instant, the great Johnny Platten. I, I had him doing, well, first I'll go back to Collingwood in the 90s and yeah. Mark was there, he used to write ultra fit and stuff and I was just doing the weights and the strength and conditioning and stuff and some of the guys would then, I didn't know that I was involved as, as a national, or then they found out I was involved as a national track and field coach, so Mick Gaver and um, those sort would come in and uh, wanted, wanted Craig Stasevich and they wanted to do more and more. So you get your um, so-called disciples that say, oh, look, I need to improve my speed and uh, away you go. And then, um, so that, so, so I did deep water running. I introduced it because I said, yeah, some of you guys are injured and they were big guys trying to run like a, um, basically a long distance runner, a 90 kilo, 95 kilo guy uh, running on footpaths and roads. And I thought, this is not sensible. So I, I brought that in. So again, I got rubbished <laughs> for some, from some quarters. What the F is this? You know? <laughs> I'd explain it. A lot of them were actually, you know, like Mick Gaper is uh, you know, basically like a, is a draftsman. They, they actually saw the point of it and we know, and they got some benefits out of it. So that, I was thinking, well, that was well ahead of its time. That, that's, you know, in the early 90s, bringing that so in. So the purpose, the purpose of the deep running running was to um, bring the load down and, and increase their, like, technical component of running, was it, or...? Yeah, they'll make it closer to running rather than just swimming. So you're working the hip flexors and you can do you can change angles and work hamstrings, you work the arm drive and right. uh, you can simulate you know, we'd worked out if you do it for thirty seconds, you'd get forty four knee drives on one leg. So it was eighty eight, we'd just count one, it was too fast to count double. So I'd we'd trial all this with the athletes and all the athletes would not all, but the really serious athletes were already doing this. And again, it was from translating the stuff from uh, come through from Eastern Europe and stuff to keep athletes going. And uh, and it and and that was verified through really good results. And even some of the guys then were the athletes were doing it for their distance running. And you got similar size guys that were ninety kilograms were running four minutes twenty for fifteen hundred meters, and they were injured and they didn't do any running. And Debbie Flintoff King used to actually have that as a compulsory part of her program. And Debbie Flintoff King, for those that aren't as 
I was me 400 metres in Seoul. She won the um, 400 hurdles gold medal. And that was a compulsory part of her, her workout. And I think no, that was weekly. That was so once then, a week. They do a deep week doing that. Session. And yeah. whatever running session that you were doing. And that was, um, and, that, and because you didn't have the eccentric forces, you could really mm. top up a lot of the muscular and, um, and uh, internal conditioning. Um, you know, like aerobic and anaerobic, depending on what you wanted, and yeah. um, and, and and even you could work on a few technical aspects as well. And um, sure. so then we'd um, then then I get to Hawthorne in the early mid nineties, early and um, Johnny Platt and I, I again for I'm going no point you guys doing all this running and your feet breaking down. So I introduced. Foot massage. I actually went again as a coach. I, I went and did a, a course in massage because I thought my athletes can't afford it, so I'll, I'll go to Masur as well if they're in treatment. I just for injury prevention. So you know, I kept going back doing courses and updating in aspects of coaching that would help maybe a fully more rounded, useful coach and not just a, in one dimension. And Johnny Platten goes, "What's this shit? You know, massaging." in the feet and I'm going, well, it's no point you building up all these muscles and running and pounding your feet. And if your feet go, that's the end of your career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in the end, Johnny, uh, it was funny, he wrote in his book, thanks, Baba, but, you know, really educating. And the, the irony of that is Johnny said, what's this shit and all that. And then he went back to central districts and he invited me to come back and uh, set up their conditioning program at Central's and, uh, in Adelaide. Uh, so recognised so, it, yeah. Then he said, listen, Deva, I was running, doing an 80-metre chase across Waverley, we were at Waverley in those, uh, and uh, I could hear your voice, relax, get your shoulders, and I thought, hallelujah, it's, it's all coming through, you know, and that's Getting in his head, yeah. Yeah, it was really, as he got older, and, and that sort of thing, and then, and then um, yeah, we changed, pretty changed the game in those days to a, a real... More intervals, but more speed. Players knew, like I always used to say, now in distance running, most of the marathon runners that line up in the Olympics have probably got a similar VO2. So hmm. what does one runner beat the other by five or eight or ten minutes? Because there's something to do with their efficiency and their mental state. Hmm. So we try to make runners very efficient as well because the game goes on and on saying if you're efficient, there's less breakdown. Less tissue breakdown means next week you'll come better and you'll get a better run through towards the end of the season. I remember once we'd done that and Ken Judge, we won. I said, Judge, you will, I reckon we'll go better at the end of the year because it was a young squad he'd taken over and, and we won, I think, the last five games. And he said he, he started to be converted because Judge was pretty well, of the, you know, just get, let him get a kick. And the same, I had him coming and we did athletics. We competed as the... Um, uh, Glenn Huntley Hawks, and we could only compete oh, yeah. in athletics. We started in D grade, and it was really performance based. The guys loved it, and Crawford and those. Was, two of them finished up with national um, rankings Crawford and Ben Dixon. Ben Dixon threw the jab on wow. 70 metres. Uh, <laughs> but they, so we, there was some real talent there. But they actually. How do they, how do they fit that in with their football? Training? Oh, that was a Saturday. You know how everyone sometimes does a Saturday run? Well, that was their yeah. choice. That was what they did. Yeah. And first, athletics people didn't like it, but the actual athletes did. But the authorities thought, you know, what's this? You know, paying fees and the athletes do all of this. In the end, crowds were starting 
<laughs> front up because yeah. I wanted to yeah. see Crawford. What, what, what would Crawford run in? Uh, he ran the uh, he ran everything. He he did he did a, a high jump, pole vault, <laughs> high jump shot. Yeah, he actually high jumped one eighty five. So and um, and also um, uh, he did you know the 100, 200, 400, 800. He got a he got a ranking in the eight hundred. He ran one minute fifty five. He finished up running. Glenn Huntley took him on to run in their A grade team. He ran one fifty five and eight, and he ran he ran four minutes. Four oh four oh three or four oh five for a fifteen hundred. And one day he got really shitty. He ran like four seventeen, and he was, and and he thought that's it. And they they were enrolling, and so he finished at the straight at the home straight. And instead of filling his name in where he finished, he went straight to the next race and ran like about four twenty something. <laughs> so he did three k. <laughs> but he just loved it. And um, it, what it did, I always used to say, well. I think this is going to be a running game the way it's going. It's like seeing ahead where you, I, I saw I saw the game as um, I saw saw the players as well under conditioned for the interval initially, and then I thought now if we can get the these players faster and more repeat speed, we'll get the jump on them. And obviously, Quinny thought the same with Essendon, and. Um, we started to focus on that, and and it happened. We were at a camp. It was a quite an interesting story. It was that I had Joan Crawford was always breaking down again, a, a bigger body, since runner, and doing 10, 10 kilometer runs. He used to just go out and run. I mean, they, that's all he knew. That that was the system back then around the boulevard on the roads. And um, we had a camp with the Hawks at the Monash University, and they had a grass running track. Um, which is now a car park just up from the um, from the rec centre, and I had this guy Craig Ferber who he he was a seven meter eighty long jumper, but he was also he could, he could run twenty one three for a two hundred. He was very fast and ten five for a hundred, and uh, and he was well out of shape. Ferber liked his food and stuff at McDonald's and stuff. He, I had a lot of traumas with him, so um, he, he could have thing. You know, Tarima used to call him Homer or Fatty Ferber, and but. Said he's the only one. Jai's an Olympic silver medalist. So, so I got Ferbs. I knew he could run. He was 97 kilograms, and I said, Ferbs, can you pace Croft through a 400? And um, he said yes. And so they they went. Crawford took off 15 meters ahead by the first um, first 100 around the bend, and then by the second 100, so they hit the 200 mark. And Ferber's only like five metres behind, running beautifully and efficiently and smoothly. Crawford mm. was running like a flat chat because he had had that fitness and Ferber was totally out of shape. And then they got around the bend into the home straight and Ferber went past him trying not to go. I told him my instruction was don't be, no, no belittling any of the players if you do happen to get there. I didn't think he – I knew he'd go okay, but I thought he'd just pace him. But anyway, they got to the straight – and Ferber's yelling out, get on my back, Croft, get on my back. And and I still, they ran like 50, 58.6 seconds around that sort of time. And Ferber won by about three metres and Croft was distraught. And I said, you believe me the intervals? And he said, and, and, and I said, and you even let this fat guy beat you. And then Chad's yeah. <laughs> And he wears glasses too. Smart. <laughs> So, so that <laughs> after that, it became a 
a really sort intervals and you know went on to get the brown low and and stuff and uh, big change for him yeah, yeah. <laughs> what have we got up on the wall uh, a little bit more to oh, other way sorry that's it oh, yeah. fantastic yeah. Oh, he's, a, he's a disciple <laughs> in that way sure is. and uh, good you know, the thing is that it's like every athlete they have to understand and buy in and his his came with the shock of Fatty Ferber killing the 97 kilo shape athlete yeah. and and um, in front of a few of his teammates and it was like okay um, and and as far as the drills go and, and knowing how to run them we had the same with a lot of you know another story was Raiden Tallis who had a big motor and um, he used to do just we called them like high knee drills, but we did them in hard positions with one arm, arms above head, a plate above the head, and then walk backs. And that's all he did for the whole summer because he had that really stuff, bad... um, resurfaces like the France Bosch stuff. That's it. Yeah. 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 I think it was his first run. I can remember the boys, Shane Crawford, Ben Dixon, uh, Daniel Chick, uh, Aaron Lord, and. Um, Angelo Lekas, all of them were good runners, and they went and ran a 1500 Olympic Park. We were just sort of crossing. We'd come across from uh, a training session and walked across, and they said, let's have a race. <laughs> come on. <laughs> you know, don't worry about training loads. So they just went off. And Raiden Tallis ran. He was actually leading for three laps, and all he did was those drills. And uh, Because he, the players would hang it on him, going, oh, you're slack. You know, we're all doing one hard, one Ks, and doing all these masses of running loads. And uh, and he couldn't do any of it because of bad patella tendonitis. But those drills meant he was landing with his foot underneath his knee, not out the front. So the 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 knee were minimal. I'd I'd worked that out through some of the basketballers we'd worked with and uh, being big guys and and, and also being involved as national jumps coach for 12 years. It was called jumper's knee, patella tendonitis. So we... All the coaches, the information swap was magnificent. Everyone would just help everyone through. It was like it was just a real fraternity of coaches. And um, so, anyway, he ran four minutes twenty-eight on just doing the drills. And I thought, and and he finished up that year going against Ben Cousins and getting two votes because he tagged him and Cousins couldn't outrun him. And I just thought, there's a so you learn from if you collect enough data and you start mm. thinking well, this work, this work. Um, when you can notice it, yeah, all the time, yeah, yeah. And mm. It takes time, and it takes trust because the players didn't trust that method. Uh, they were certainly thinking that doesn't look hard, and it's not the volume of grinding thing, um, mm. and um, you know, it's not what everyone else does. And that's the yeah. big thing. I any conditioning coaches out there, any aspiring ones, is don't just do what everyone else does. Look at the game, dissect the Where game, understand. Like really understand it and go to. I used to go to every meeting that the coaches would go that that allow me to go into um, because I thought I'm not on your level in footy, but I want to know what you're doing and I want to know how I can help it. Not I didn't. You can't be arrogant and start saying I'm going to put a limit of 20 kicks on this or that sort of thing, and and saying well I know everything when you don't know enough about football. If you do, yep. well then you. Can Say, well, the 20 kicks can affect you, but you really need to. You don't do it because some other club's doing it. You need to know what your people can do, and and also, you know, if you do have a 
deficiency in kicking, sometimes you've got to do that over something else. You know, maybe of course. You know, yeah. So it just depends, and so you have really got to understand what everyone, the total picture of the total team and the total model. Uh, Carl's just sent through a, a message. Who's been lit, tuned in and he's listening? Uh, Carl sent through. Mo what's your most inspirational athlete you've worked with and why? Oh, I wouldn't want. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> I, I've worked with. They all inspire me. Funny, it's like, like I said, I learn from the highest achiever. Like I've had some really high achievers. Like in every event, you know. Like um, the one that I learned a lot from and still learn a lot from is, is one of the basketballers, David Anderson. He's still, he just got called back to play for Melbourne United. David's 41 next month. I've coached him since he was 19. And I always say, and I've used, David's been, again, really good. I use him as a mentor in all my groups. And I can still remember Jordan Ridley from Essendon training with him as a 13-year-old. Still got the videos, how <laughs> I collected <laughs> Jordan with the Opals and, uh, and, and David. And um, and Jack Higgins was in that session, and Cody Waite, three as a, as all really young, <laughs> tiny little kids coming yeah. through. And Jordan said to me, "I can't believe it. I had a guy that plays in the you know, these Dave's shirt there, and yeah. he um he uh he spoke to me, and he gave me all his rollers, and told me how to stretch, and he told me what it takes to be a professional. I'm thinking, you know, he, he goes NBA people, you know, the, the image is that they're all People are arrogant, but I use Dave to mentor a lot of these up-and-coming kids. To one, to make them feel comfortable around a, a top performer. That that you just see that they're just a normal human being. Mm. That that's what they do really well. And he and to answer Carl's question, why he's so good is is I don't know. I just go. It's he's got what it takes mentally. And uh, and one of the questions that you're saying is where's the the next development's going, and I always look at. Dave said to me, "Look, I'm not the best in anything physically or whatever." He said, "But they're never going to beat me on the court. I'll put it all together. I know how to put it together, and that's mm. that's that's the side I reckon that if you can get, there's a quality in the champions. It's the same when I met Victor Sanayev, and uh, he was throwing the, the medicine ball back with Andrew Murphy, who's coaching Rowan Browning now, the, the fastest sprinter in Australia." And Andrew was um, Australia's best triple jump, and he'd throw the medicine ball backward, forward, backward, forward, and Victor kept But Victor was 55 at that point, and that's the guy that won four, uh, three Olympics and silver at four. And he kept teasing him, just throwing it past him. And I, hmm. I was with the National Junior Squad, and I said to the kids, I just sort of whispered to them, watch, watch what he's doing. He's teasing him, and he's cajoling him, but he's, he said, he sh he's the coach, he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be trying to belittle him. He said he, he can throw much further, but he's just bringing this up. Andrew Murphy and teasing him, and uh, Andrew was getting frustrated. And I said, this is why Victor's a such a champion. The mentality is different to anyone else. Like, And then Victor said, what for are you looking at me? And I'm going, Victor, you've won three Olympics and a silver. I said, there's something special about you. You're the 0.1% of the human race. And he goes, yeah. okay, I'm talking about, and I thought, yeah, he understood, and I understood him that he had a different mentality of what, and those people know, and the same, even him, when he showed me the Soviet things, he was a Georgian, and uh, 
got to be careful you can't call them Russians <laughs> because they're all put under that system but he 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 had crosses through certain drills and I said why is this and he goes I watch this and I, I see this squad that did these exercises and they eventually all broke down and he said that is not good and I'm going what about psychology and he said well, his wife was a trained psychologist. He said, I don't need psychology. My wife's a psychologist. <laughs> but, but he was psychology training. Yeah. And, and so... That's the know, future, you think, of it? These people are different mentally, and that's the same. Mm. Shane Crawford's different mentally. You see, well, you see how he, he interacts. And, and um, yeah, yeah, and I think that's... Like, everyone can do all the physical things and the physical tests... But the ones that really get it and know where they're going, they have a special quality. And, and that's why it's always around. I try to get Dave Anderson in with any up-and-coming kids because I want them to absorb. I don't know what it is. I said, don't watch him on the skills, uh, the drills. Not the drills, you might even beat him. But don't don't think that that's the be-all and end-all. He'll teach you something else. And you look at his resume and it reads like five pages of um you know, we've been to four Olympics and uh, playing in the US and all over Europe and starting. You know, it's added bring it together. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege of working with some of the Opals girls that are underrated because they're women. They don't get exposed, like Christy Harrower, an unbelievable player. And again, mentally got it together. And Lauren Jackson helping her with the rehab. And that's like, they're different mental capacities to a lot of us. Um, and I, I can't put a finger on it, but so what all I do is associate athletes around them, and uh, and it feeds off, and you start to yeah, it's this aura, it's it's it's, it's almost a it's it's real, but it's almost a mystical type thing. But they know how to do it, and they're not lazy, but they they work, and they know how much work, and um, yeah, and they're very tough. And they just know this mm. is the job. Let's get on with it. It's not like yeah excuses or reasons not to do it and uh, you know and I, I suppose I, I don't know him but I almost look at Dustin Mark the same sort of aura and feel you know according to what you hear from players absolutely well we'll start to wrap it up Darren um, Rockland sent through a question for you I know you know Darren he said uh, how has the AFL changed over the years purely from a running perspective um, and, and what do you see the future, you know, I know you can, you've consulted with uh, AFL clubs. Um, where do you yeah. see the future of, of AFL conditioning going? Yeah, with well, just from conditioning, I think it's definitely faster, but they're trying to slow it down. So I, I just think, you know, you don't want to, you just need to be well-rounded and be prepared for wherever the game's going to go. But you have to look at the game and see where it's going because the rules keep changing all the time and mm. so does the game and the administrators keep changing it. So if you're like um, speed power-based, do not neglect the endurance side as well, like a high level of knowledge. And, and, and I think where the game should go in a way is um, I, think, I think a lot of it's... Um, bringing people, I think they need to outsource some of the people that are really good at certain things, still control it. Like um, um, analogies, Matthew Lloyd with King, they might have something to offer, but the Saints, for their reason, don't want him to go outside their system, and that's a good reason what they've got too. But I think even off-season, it's going to go like in America where LeBron yeah. highs his, 
and uh, knows, and that's not just that. But I always said to Dave Anderson, like, you've been to like 15, 16, 20 teams, counting national teams, you're going to have 15 to 20 different conditioning coaches. So each one might have a different philosophy. You need yeah, someone to thing you do is surround yourself with a team of people that you trust and that includes psychologists and all that type because you just can't get to know someone um, just because they get recruited and sent to your team um, in you know through a pre-season you really have to have developed them and um, and I almost think not so much at the club I think it's pretty similar to what Barcelona do I, I well, I actually stayed in Barcelona for five months um, with David Anderson, with the basketball and the soccer team, and they were all in one. But their development systems are probably what AFL needs to be trying to do. But their squads, their junior squads, are developed along the lines of what they want to feed into their main model. But their main yeah. coaches also work with their junior coaches and had full access. Because so, uh, I was the only one in the stadium that security would let me in as well as I looked across one day, every so often, once a week, there'd be these 20 people, and they were all men and women, all different coaches that were allowed in on their specialist sessions and were developing those coaches along those lines. And I, I think, and then that system feeds into it, and I'm looking at the AFL, the talent pool is getting more shallower because they have to go overseas to get them, and they've got 18 teams instead of, you know, they used to have like 14 and 16, and and they keep increasing it, so the talent pool needs to be developed. So I think yep. they need really good development coaches to help develop, because otherwise I think that, you know, the, the turnaround's about three to four years and the players then disappear and they go into the um, other feeder leagues. And uh, you, need, you need to develop. I think a lot of the talent is missed and um, the expertise in development coaches will be really important, and that's where... The running, to briefly answer Darren's question, is know all your running, distance, the technical side, the speed, but also the running. Like, oh, I've got one, you know, my bugbear is with the agility tests that they do in the draft camp, and you're running it. Then, and you see particularly a lot of the um, really good ball runners will run really well with a ball, like especially some of the Indigenous guys who just have better, some of them will actually run better. And I almost think they should have some of the testing with a ball yeah. on the running yeah. um, because players won't run with a ball if, and, the, and, the, and um, they still might be very fast, but they're not so fast with a ball in their hand. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, That's running talent identification. Offensive run. Running with a ball is an offensive run. So, mm. yeah, mm. that type of thing. And, and I, I think that's that, that type of thing. Um, needs to be put into because coaches need to see that sort of thing. Plus also taught, it's like, like my analogy is um, I worked with a high jumper, Tim Forsyth. Uh, I wasn't his coach. His coach was Sandro Gazzetto. And Tim said, I oh, look, 90% of my time, and he jumped two metres 36 in a bronze medal in Barcelona. He said, 90% of my jump is my run-up. He said, that's the main thing I practice. And, and again, I just wonder whether in some of the... Um, the executive skill that they actually practice the running because it could be a bit, I, I personally feel there's a technique in running that's suited to kicking on the run um, and different of runs like a, an exit run out of a pack or a uh, 
or uh, there's a different runner already getting the ball at top speed. It's a different way to run, and it's no different to um, even 100 metres. You have your um, you know, power out of the blocks and acceleration in the, in the, um, in the, and then the maintenance phase. And um, So you need to know every aspect of it, and in the same middle distance running is a different different way of running than sprinting. So, and also understanding the loads that each of them gives you and also the breakdown that you get from overloading each of the systems. So I think I think just keep gathering knowledge and uh, when the game changes, you're then ready for those changes. And then, yeah, you can pivot. Yeah, yeah. And also when you see the result the, in the off-season, the rules are changing, you go, right, well, we've got to do this. That that you're stuck with the people that you recruited. You might have recruited a lot of tall guys that basically are not fast or that's that's a generalisation because some of the tall guys are the quickest guys in the league. But they're not fast with a ball and low down. You know, they're, they're actually fast running, but they're not... Not as mobile. Fast, you know, getting the ball. Yeah, not as mobile, not, not as uh, agile. Yeah. Very good, mate. Well... I've uh, I've certainly taken down a lot of notes, so thank you so much for, <laughs> for the stories and uh, all the information uh, you've provided along the way. Um, you've almost provided us a framework uh, or a small snippet of the Bowden framework. Anyway, it's been uh, yeah keen to, keen to learn more um, and, and keen to catch up with you in person as well. And, and I'd love uh, to see the flesh once all this lockdown's done. What, what's on it's... the horizon for you, mate? What what are you excited for 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 two thousand twenty one? I just uh, some of the kids I'm coaching, that's all. I'm just really excited because I know they're coming through and a lot of people can't see it because you're busy working on the project side of it. And, um, yeah, it's like I can see things happening and you, know, yeah. you don't want to try them, but I know certain certain um, kids are going to go have exceptional years. I don't build them for the year. I'm building them for their career. So it's like... It's like if you're hoping for a, 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 one of the kids or girls or guys to get drafted, you don't. I don't. A lot of people want to get them drafted. Yes, I do, but I, I like them to have a long career and a successful career like a David and play the game they love for a long period of time. And, and they probably don't realise if you do that, that they'll think, oh, well, I've done well. But you know as a conditioning coach that you've had some some part to play in longevity of them. And that's, that's what I look forward to. And, you know, and I've got a couple of projects that I'm hoping to do well in footy. And then, um, funny enough, the lady that I coach that still holds Australian triple jump record, they've been, they're having a campaign to try and break her record. And her, she's got a 13-year-old yeah. that I'm going to take okay. on in Australia and try the same thing. So one of the real challenges is... If Nikki's daughter can be the first to break her record, it'll take about yeah, that'd be cool. four or five years. So that'll be a little challenge. It's got me back into the sport. Fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. It's inspirational, mate, to hear about your passion and, and, and your care for, for helping others. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time. Much appreciated, Jack. Thanks for having us and thanks for everyone that's tuned in as well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry. Data. <laughs> I wasn't very good. wasn't very helpful there. What was that? Sorry about the technical mishaps at the start. Uh, I don't no, think I was okay. very happy. You're not.
you know, the only one. It's it's all uh, it's a different setup that I'm doing with the live stuff, so it has its complications. But we got there in the end. That's the main thing. And they've done it really well. Much appreciated. Made it really comfortable. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, Make sure if uh, you enjoyed this episode, I will post it. Um, So if you missed uh, Bowden at the start, you can check it out on the Facebook page to watch the very beginning. And um, we will post it on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube uh, on a Monday in in coming weeks. So stay tuned, subscribe to our podcast, and, and thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.